I'm 21 News Managing Editor Justin Mitchell, and welcome to another edition of the 21 News Podcast. You know, as I sit here, it is almost hard to believe all that has transpired in the United States since last Wednesday, when domestic terrorists supporting the sitting president of the United States, Donald Trump, literally stormed into the United States Capitol in an attempt to overthrow the certification of the 2020 election in an effort to keep Trump in power. As I speak, the United States House of Representatives is getting ready to vote on impeaching Trump for his role in inciting the effort, which is being called an insurrection. So are these times truly unprecedented for the US? And is there any historic parallel we can look to to figure out where we may be headed next? With me is Kevin Adams, chair of the history department at Kent State University and an expert on insurrections. So Dr. Adams, thanks for being with us today. I'm happy to be here and provide whatever insight I can. Well, uh, hopefully, because uh, (laughs) I think we're all just sort of looking for to to get our bearings. Things are just going so fast. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is just to delve into that word. We're hearing that word insurrection a lot over the course of the past week. And I'm not sure a lot of people, it was even a part of their vocabulary before that. So could you put that into perspective for the audience? What's it mean? And what is the history of insurrection in America? Right. So insurrection is a concept that's been present in American history from the beginning of the nation, essentially. Uh, Some of your listeners may have heard of the Whiskey Rebellion in Western Pennsylvania, an attempt to avoid paying taxes on whiskey. Uh, That was the sort of the first insurrection in American history in the 1790s. And from basically that point on, insurrection has been defined in federal law uh, in a variety of ways. Uh, The most common explanation I think that most listeners have is that Insurrection involves an attempt to sort of overthrow the government, right? There's a mob that shows up trying to depose a governor, the president, whatever. But actually, insurrection has a much broader meaning legally. It can be something as simple as trying to obstruct the enforcement of laws or to interrupt sort of constitutional processes, seizing federal ground or property. So it's really broader than the sort of, I think, the colloquial understanding of it. And so if we think of insurrection basically as a revolt against authority, I think it's probably a better way of approaching it than the sort of like the revolution you might have in your mind. Right, right. So so what can we compare this moment in time to in American history? You gave the one example right there. Yeah. Um, the closest example here. So first of all, I should say at the federal level, this is really unprecedented, right? Okay. People, a lot of references to the War of 1812, but that's a nation state fighting a nation state, right? That's not an internal mob sort of descending upon the Capitol. Um, the best example I, I can come to that comes to my mind is the attempt in the southern states during Reconstruction to depose Republican governments that were committed to biracial democracy, right? In the most extreme examples, you will see mobs of white supremacists overrunning state capitals. The best example is in Louisiana in 1875, where the state's Republican governor was deposed for a short time by one of those mobs that literally seized the capital, pushed aside the police. Um, and so... This has a history, um, uh, but uh, th- what we're seeing now is unprecedented, I think, at the federal level. So extrapolate for me, because that's obviously at the state level. And yeah. you, we, I think we see some of those ripple effects still. Some of these places you're talking about, you still see them flying the Confederate flag yeah. and things like that. Like that, It's right. not as though those movements just go away. That's right. Yeah, no, I, I think the thread that connects uh, the past to the present is this sort of thread of the sovereign white citizen, right? If you look at the history of the United States in the 19th century, you will find mobs of angry white folks at various points, right? They are overrunning Indian reservations. They are expelling Chinese immigrants from West Coast cities in the 1880s. They are involved in reconstruction, trying to preserve white supremacy. 
the federal government has always had a very difficult time responding to these mobs of white citizens. Um, fear of overreach. Uh, if you attack sort of a republic which calls itself a white man's republic, do you delegitimize your own government, right? By going after the folks who form the essence of it, right? The government has always had difficulty figuring out how to best respond to these groups. And the response has typically been no response or a very muted one, which is only emboldened them. You say so you say a muted response is only emboldened them because that brings us to yeah. uh, to a little bit to the modern times where we're talking about a broader scale. We're talking yeah. about something that spreads across 50 states, has elements yeah. of it, at least in 50 states. Right. And, uh, and and there's a lot of talk now about what to do next about yeah. it. Obviously, there's things like criminal charges for individual people who broke specific laws. Yeah. But in terms of a movement, we got a bigger problem here. That's, that's right. And that's really the challenge of how to respond to that movement, right? You might think of this as, an, in essence, a form of counterinsurgency campaign, right? There's a segment of American society which is upset at the dominant order, right? They see the election of Biden as illegitimate. Those sentiments won't go away with the inauguration, right? So the question becomes, how do you respond uh, sort of throughout society, right? And, and it's complicated by the fact you have like sort of local, state, and federal actors all trying to grapple with this question. Um, what I can say is I think the best response that history tells us is that you have to be regressive in responding to them in a sort of a variety of ways, right? And I think if you think about what's going on now, uh, the president being removed from Twitter, corporations pulling donations from politicians who maybe have encouraged this movement, right? Legal mm -hmm. charges, that kind of multifaceted operation to show that there's a cost for sedition um, and insurrection. I think that uh, provides the best uh, response going forward, but that's a long-term solution, really. I mean, it's not something that's going to go away overnight. Sure, sure. But you hear people, in fact, I mean, literally on the House floor right now, you're hearing people make two different arguments. And one argument is that you there absolutely need to be consequences for all involved, up to and including impeachment of the president, potentially. Right. Um, and, and then the other argument that you hear is we're a deeply divided nation mm -hmm. and any efforts to go back regressively, as you say, and and, and punish these th these actions can only deeper divide the nation. So from a historical perspective, I'm curious, who needs held accountable? Is there a line that should be drawn? Should it be widespread? Right. Let me first say, but I think this is where history kind of helps us, but also maybe fails us, right? There are definitely connections in with the past in terms of these insurrectionary mobs. Like we see them throughout American history. But I also think the moment we're living in is unique to this time and place. Right. I can't imagine a mob like this emerging in, say, 1958. Mm -hmm. Right. We're in a very heightened, polarized political system right now. And I think in many ways, the system encourages uh, people to take extreme positions like they're rewarded in terms of donations and their party support and things like that. So we're in a very unique moment um, in terms of how to move forward in terms of, uh, you know, do you go after everyone? Do you just sort of make people angrier? I think the one thing history does say is doing nothing is the worst possible option, right? So the question of how to respond, there's, I think, reasonable disagreement about what's best. Um, my concern is some of the things you hear in Congress, I don't think are necessarily good faith arguments. I don't think you're hearing, hearing Republicans defending the conduct of the president. They're taking a sort of a, this is divisive sort of stance uh, and, and not really and kind of just bypassing their conduct since, say, November 6th, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. and, and sort of that, to me, is, a, is not a good faith argument. Um, I think it's going to be a real tough nut to crack. And I, I think the inauguration, I think, is uh, the security forces will be prepared. But my concern is what comes after. 
right? Sure, sure. Well, then you mentioned so you mentioned certain members of Congress and and their and some of their conduct since November. Um, I, I guess that's another argument that's not on the front burner right now, but has been mentioned, which is not the 25th Amendment, but the 14th Amendment yeah. and the potential for some recourse against yeah. any sitting member of Congress who has essentially told, you know, repeated the big lie often enough about a stolen yeah. election. Yeah. So I, I just kind of like your take on that. And and you'll explain better than I will what I'm talking about. Explain the 14th Amendment yeah. and how it could be used there. So uh, the 14th Amendment is one of the sort of the uh, byproducts of the Civil War, right? It's one of the Reconstruction Amendments. It's most commonly talked about in terms of things like equal protection under the law, due process, these sort of phrases we hear growing up in school. It's designed to provide citizens and also just residents of the United States a certain bit of a set of procedural protections. But contained within the 14th Amendment is a particular section that speaks to the concerns of the 1860s. And that is those uh, congressmen who supported the insurrection, which for them is the Civil War, could be expelled from Congress because of their support for insurrection. And the other phrase you'll hear a lot coming forward is sedition. Uh, sort of a revolt against the authority of the United States. And in fact, you'll hear on Twitter some discussion of sedition charges coming for people who help organize a mob via cons conspiracy. Um, so the 14th Amendment provides a way for Congress to expel people who are seen as a danger to the federal authority and the federal government. It is not a step taken very often. Uh, mm -hmm. And expulsion is something that's only happened rarely. In fact, one example is in Northeast Ohio, Jim Trafficant, which people in, in Northeast Ohio will know very well. Oh, but yeah. But those, but those, uh, those, those were expulsions for very specific and particular episodes and conducts. This is a more broad-based attack against um, seditionary sentiments, which is more deeply rooted than the misconduct of one person. And so I don't know. It's hard to. It'll be interesting to see what Congress does with that. As sort of my take, it's it's hard to say. Uh, but we're in a moment where that's even possible, which is to me a week ago I wouldn't have thought that. So history well, is shifting rapidly. Exactly. And so the old saying is, you know, you, you have to know your history or you're yeah. doomed to repeat it. Now, I, I know you said that this is sort of unprecedented at the federal level, but certainly there are lessons from history to be drawn. And I think one question and not to put not to put too much on you here, but are we going to be OK? Is there an end game here or are we too far gone? Yeah. So so what gives me sort of optimism is, you know, I think. The terms, the people who are actually violent, right? The people who are actually violently seeking to disrupt uh, society, I think, are still a minority, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I mean, we can have a debate about how widespread these sentiments really are. Some of them are, are I think, undoubtedly for, on the political level show, right? Politicians are speaking to ideas they think will be popular that will help them, sure. right? Um, but I, I do think that the people who are actually actively a danger is probably the minority, I think that's a, 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 a sort of a, a scenario where law enforcement is able to accommodate and proactively go after those groups. And if you think about other groups in American history who seem to have posed a threat and were essentially crushed, think of groups like say, the Black Panthers, right? The late 60s, much smaller group actually than I think what we're doing with now, but the government can use its resources to kind of proactively investigate those groups. I think uh, if we're talking about minority here, it can be dealt with, but again, it's going to be a long-term issue the other thing which is interesting and what I did not anticipate myself is that um, if you're a political scientist, you think, oh, okay, a party is facing, say, demographic change and political change. What do they do? They change their policies, right? They adapt to the new reality. We haven't seen that, I think, from the Republican Party. Uh, you can think a lot of what's going on is an attempt to hold on to an America 
that they believe deeply in and they feel like they're going to lose because of changes in politics. If the Republican Party can adapt with a new positive vision that speaks to Americans, I think that would be really good for the country as opposed to starting this kind of backward looking, let's hold on to what we have at all costs. But whether that will work in Republican primaries is an open question. Well, and to that point, because I mean, you're the historian, I, I my degree was political science. Yeah. And so so I'm looking at what where the Republican yeah. Party is, stands here. And it seems to me that they in part got to where they are now, um, at least in terms of their relationship with Donald Trump, by not having a whole lot of rules in their primary process. And they were really ripe to be taken over by by this charismatic figure. The yeah. Democrats didn't have that. Bernie Sanders would have been the nominee twice if they if they yeah. had the rules the Republicans had. Yeah. So do you think, given that Mitch McConnell is now being quoted by sources as saying he hates Donald Trump, that there's that much animosity, <laughs> right? Um, and he's going to be around for a while still, at least a little while um, in the arena, as opposed to, mm -hmm. you know, sort of yelling from the outside. Do you think it's likely that the Republicans and do you think it's advisable that the Republicans sort of quietly make some tweaks to their rules so that the primary process isn't so much the Wild West? Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not the big one of the big themes of American history, right? Democracy versus sort of uh, elite rule, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think Mitch McConnell and establishment Republicans, I think this is going to be a moment where their actions are actually perhaps decisive, right? Because what you're seeing, I believe, is actually a civil war within the Republican Party between sort of institutionally minded Republicans who harken back to a tradition of, say, free market capitalism and deregulation versus a more populist sort of wing of the Republican Party, people who probably wouldn't have been Republicans 20 years ago, but who, who have been attracted to the party because of Trump. I think that's really where the front, uh, the battlefront is, as it were, politically. How that plays out will determine where this all goes. I mean, we know where the Democrats will be. They'll be opposing, uh, of course, Trumpism. How effectively, we don't know. I mean, there'll be midterms in two years, we'll see. Um, but uh, I, I just, my personal take is, I think the institutionalists are, uh, in more trouble than they realize, because I think they've let this grow for a long time, right? Mitch, it's, it's fine for Mitch McConnell to say he hates Trump now, but he certainly used Donald Trump for his own ends for four years, right? Sure. And so a, a, direct, a, a 180 seems unlikely. Uh, and, it, and, it, and frankly, I think it would hurt them in those primaries that you were talking about, right? There's no way that a moderate Mitch McConnell appeals to Republican primary voters in Kentucky. Um, yeah. Sure, sure. But but there is an argument to be made that, look, seven, uh, something like 75 million people voted for Donald Trump, and there were nowhere near 75 million people in the streets last week. That's right. Um, yep. And so yep. when you think of it in those terms, there is a case to yep. be made for a return, potentially a real roarback of traditional republicanism, because that might be where the majority of those voters would otherwise fall, yep. or they don't vote at all. Right. Well, and that's and this is where it's really the political scientists know, right? Because you go down to party rules, who runs state parties. I mean, that's where democracy is really fleshed out in the details, as it were, right? You know, who wins nominations, who gets the money. Um, I, I, I typically agree that I think the structure of the party would like to return to a pre-Trump era. The question is, can they do that in a sort of democratic primary and succeed? And that's sort of the open question. We'll see as Trump departs the scene. But as you said, that is more of a political science question and that we see how it plan, how it plays out. But as Americans, mm -hmm. you're saying there is some optimism oh, here yeah. that there's a, there are a lot of things sort of happening right now that will yeah. probably set the tone for this insurrection, as it were, yeah. to not be, you know, the devolution yeah. into civil war yeah. that some fear it could be. 
Yeah, well, and I'll say this. I mean, I teach American immigration history, right, from 1607 to the present, migrations to America. And if you look at the census, since immigration reform in the mid-60s, the country everywhere has become more diverse, more highly educated, and more cosmopolitan in many ways. And that's happening everywhere, right? And that's the future of the country in many ways. And I think if you're going to take an optimistic historical viewpoint, the rise of Trump and sort of what you might call white nationalist populism is a response to those changes. And those changes aren't going to stop, right? If you go to any of the major cities and look at who's succeeding the economy, who's running those cities, it's a much more diverse and different America than you would have seen in 1990. And I think that's still going to continue. And the suburban switch to Democrats reflects that, I think. People, immigrants who would traditionally be very Republican, right? Hey, this country, I came to it. I lifted myself by the bootstraps. I succeeded. Are now saying, well, wait a minute. I come from, you know, Korea and people don't like me because I'm Asian, right? Maybe I should think about my political allegiances a little bit differently, right? And so I, I think that process will continue. And I think that ultimately gives us the reason for hope uh, that the whole country will be in a very different place in 20 years. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you're right that there's a, that there's hope for optimism in the future yeah. because I, you know, I, I remember a time where I'd talk politics and everyone thought I was boring. I'd like to get back to that point. <laughs> you yes. know what I mean? Yes. I always tell people, People always say, I love history. It's so great. I'm like, you do not want to live in historic times. Like, you just don't. <laughs> you want things to be very boring. <laughs> right, right. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. This has been insightful. Great. Um, pleasure talking with you. Thank you.